Our scripture for today is from Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12 and going through verse 17. This is the letter to the church in Pergamum. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Lord, I pray that you would bless this reading of your word and that you would speak now to us through your Holy Spirit. Amen. The letter for this week, the letter to the church at Pergamum, and the letter next week, the letter to the church in Thyatira, they're very similar. They're both commended for their faithfulness and for their perseverance through suffering. But they also have a very similar warning. The warning is that they tolerated false teachers in their church who were leading people to do two things. To eat food sacrificed to idols and to participate in sexual immorality. As I've been reading through both of these letters over the last few months and then this week, it seems to me that both of these churches are confused about authority. Authority. To who or to what will receive our allegiance? Who or what will we follow? Who is going to determine the foundation that we build our lives on? Who will I give my heart to? What am I going to allow to shape the desires of my heart? In the letters to the churches of Pergamum and Thyatira, there are these explicit references to other personalities in the city or in the church that the people in the church may have been tempted to give their allegiance to, to claim as their authority. In the church at Pergamum, it said that they live in a city where Satan has his throne. And uh, Jesus also mentions other false teachers in the church that claim to have some sort of authority over the church, but were teaching things that were opposed to Jesus. And I think the source of confusion and compromises in the church of Pergamum and Thyatira is that there were teachers referred to here as Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans, and in Thyatira, the teaching of Jezebel. And they were saying this. That you could be a follower of Jesus and you could be a follower of Jesus and a 
accommodate to the idols and the sinful practices of the people around you. You can follow Jesus and head to the local temple, take a pinch of incense and declare Caesar as the Lord, and then participate in whatever activities benefit you or bring you pleasure. You can follow Jesus and also give in to the sexual immorality of the day. You can do both. You can follow Jesus and accommodate and compromise to the culture around you. The false teachers in Pergamum and in Thyatira are saying you can serve two masters. But Jesus was clear. You cannot serve two masters. Jesus is clear. Either he is Lord over every area of your life, or he is not Lord at all. In the message of the letter to Pergamum and next week to the, the church in Thyatira, is that our full allegiance must be given to Jesus, and that we must submit to his word, which is described here in this letter as a sharp, double-edged sword. In chapter 1, in this description of the Son of Man, the sharp, double-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. The double-edged sword described here is the Word of God, which we are called to submit to under, in every area of our life. Jesus is our final authority, and we live that out by submission and obedience to His Word. And that's just kind of the thesis statement, the big idea of this sermon. Jesus is our final authority, and we live that out by submission and obedience to His Word. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Jesus is our final authority, and we live that out by submission and obedience to his, his word. Just a, a little bit of background about this church in Pergamum. Just a few things for you to know about this city and the context that these Christians were living in. Uh, Pergamum was the capital city in this region, and because of that, it was one of the centers of the worship of Caesar, uh, the king of Rome, the emperor of Rome. One of the very first temples built in honor of Caesar Augustus was built in Pergamum um, almost a hundred years before the book of Revelation was written. It was a city that loved ideas. Pergamum had one of the largest libraries in the world at this time. It was a city that loved ideas and that attracted people to it that were pursuing learning of all different kinds. Pergamum also had a temple, temples dedicated to at least two different Greek gods there in the city. One was uh, a temple to Zeus, uh, the, the greatest of the, the Greek gods, and there was also another temple there dedicated to the god Asclepios, who was the god of healing. Asclepios was portrayed as a serpent, and in that particular temple you could go there and there were lots of tame snakes, and people would go and they would sleep there at night and have these snakes crawl over them, and it was believed that these snakes had healing powers. The Christians in the city of Pergamum were living in a city that was filled with superstition, filled with other religions, and false ideas about all sorts of things, from medicine to politics. With all of these temples and these false idols and these false ideas in the city, Pergamum would have been one of the most difficult places in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. It's no wonder that Jesus says here that Pergamum is the place where Satan has his throne. 
where he has his throne. The liar and the accuser and the deceiver had a strong hold on the city of Pergamum. And with all of those different idols and ideas around, there would have been pressure to conform. Remember that idea of philipsis, pressure to conform. To conform sometimes to avoid persecution. You see in this letter that there was a man named Antipas who actually was put to death in the city of Pergamum because of his faith and his witness to Christ. And in other times, maybe pressure just to conform in order to benefit financially or to increase social status or to just not rock the boat. And so it's to this church in Pergamum, in this particular city that I just described, where Jesus reminds them that he has the sharp, double-edged sword. Remember, every single one of these seven letters begins by reminding the church of some aspect of the Son of Man that was described in Revelation chapter 1. And in chapter 1, the Son of Man is said to have a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his, his mouth. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. There's another uh, portion of Scripture that, that speaks about this sharp, double-edged sword called the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. The writer of Hebrews says this, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The Word of God is described in Revelation and in Hebrews as a sharp, double-edged sword. It has the power to cut deeply into our heart, to the place of our souls, and to uncover our thoughts and our, our intentions and our desires and our attitudes. It has the power to uncover lies that we believe or lies that we have been told about God or ourselves or of the world. And Jesus begins this letter by reminding the church in Pergamum who He is. He is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword, his word, which comes with power to overcome lies and false claims and worldviews that were being made by the people around them in their city. And then after reminding them who he is as the one with the sharp, double-edged sword coming from his mouth, he also commends the church in Pergamum for remaining faithful to him. Church in Pergamum, it's a hard place to be a follower of Jesus, but you have held true to my name. Even when they saw their friend Antipas put to death, you have remained faithful and steadfast in your commitment. But then Jesus also warns them of these false teachers who have come into the church and are teaching that allegiance to Jesus could be divided between Jesus and other idols or Jesus and our own desires. And so the church is reminded that as followers of Jesus, our first and final authority is Him, and we follow Him by submitting to and obeying His Word. So I want to talk a little bit about what it means for us to live and to submit to Jesus and to His Word. And I want to talk to you today about God's Word as, as two things, as the foundation for our life, and as our measure for judging any other um, idea that we hear. So 
if you want to write down in your notes, that the, God's word is our foundation and it is our, our measure. Our foundation and our measure. Let's begin by talking about God's word as our foundation. The good news found in Jesus and in the scriptures, in the stories and in the poems and the songs and the proverbs and the other instructions about life that God's word gives to us, the truth that it speaks about God and about ourselves and about our world, the big story that it tells about God's plan to redeem our entire world, the big story that points us to who Jesus the Messiah is for us, this is our foundation. God's word is our foundation that we build our lives on, and it tells us the truth about God, about ourselves, and about our world. It tells us the truth about God, and about ourselves, and about our world. And because it's the truth about these things, we can build our lives on these truths. His word is the place where we stand. When the storms, when the difficulties of life comes, we have a solid rock to stand on. So first, as followers of Jesus, we believe what the word says about God. His word tells us that God is the creator of all things, that he made all things out of the overflow of his love and his joy. It tells us, as we've already sung today, that he is full of compassion, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. His word tells us this wonderful truth that God is a father. That we can know and experience God as a father who loves us and we can trust him with our whole life. His word tells us that this creator and father not only loves us and has a plan for our life, but he loves and has a plan for his entire world. He is at work to redeem and to restore everything that is broken. And he does that through the work of the Father's Son, Jesus. God the Son came into the world and took on human flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. He came near to us and took on the burdens and difficulties of human life. He wept and he laughed and he ate and he drank and he became tired and he became weary. And then he took on the burden of sin and the separation from the Father that that sin had caused. And he took it upon himself and died on the cross as a sacrifice for us. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering our great enemy death for us. So that when we place our faith in him, we can live, we can have the promise of living together forever with him. And then the Father and the Son says that they sent the Spirit into the world. That you and I, through God's mercy and our faith, can be filled with the Spirit of the Father and the Son and enjoy life together with Him right now. These are some of the things that the Word says to us about who God is. And we can build our lives on this foundation because they are true about who He is and about what He has done. We also believe what the Word says to us about ourselves. The first thing that the Bible says to us about ourselves is that we were made in God's image. That you and every single person that you meet is made in the image of God. That we reflect to the world something about who God is. The second thing that the Bible tells us about ourselves is that we rebelled against God. That we sinned, that we broke God's commandments. And as we've been talking about today, we gave our allegiance over to someone else, to some other word in our life. 
And this sin, this rebellion, this breaking of His commandment broke our relationship with God that He intends for us. But because He is rich in mercy and slow to anger and abounding in love and compassion, God sent His Son Jesus into the world to take on the punishment and the repercussions of those sins so that that relationship that is broken can be mended again. And in his death and resurrection, he was victorious over sin and death that entangles us, that causes us to fear. And we're now invited into a relationship where we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life of love for God and for neighbor. And so our life, because of the spirit that God has given to us and that fills us, we can live a life of joy, even if it's also mixed with the sorrow that comes from living in a broken world. We believe these things about ourselves and so many other things that the scriptures say to us. They are true, and because they are true, we can build our lives on them. We also believe what God's Word says about our world, this world that we live in, this place that we live in. The Word tells us that the world was not an incredible accident, but an incredible work of a good and wise God. A good and wise God who is infinitely creative and what he creates is always beautiful. God made the world to be a place where his place and our place can be the same place. But the scriptures tell us that because of our sin and our rebellion, that the world has been corrupted with evil and with suffering and with death that comes from that rebellion. And so we're told in the scriptures that suffering and evil and death are real. They aren't imaginary. We can't escape them or ignore them or transcend them. They are real, and in this life they will always be present with us. And so in a world with very real evil and very real suffering and very real death, the call in the scriptures is to persevere through them with God. And so as he walks with us through these trials in our life, he is at work deepening us, making us more like Jesus, expanding and growing our souls to love God and to love neighbor more as we go through this pressure, these trials of our lives. And the promise of the scriptures is that God is at work right now redeeming the world, redeeming the whole world from our abuse of it and our abuse of one another. And so through the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, God is going to resurrect the whole world and make all things new again. We believe these things and so much more about our world. These are true things that the scriptures say to us about our world, and so we can build our life on them, these foundations and the truths that comes from them. It's our foundation. It enables us to live and to walk in the truth day by day. And so I just want to ask you the question, are you reading it? Is this a part of your life to open up the scriptures and to learn from this foundation that God has given to us? Is that a part of your life? I started a, a practice this year that I'm stumbling at, but it's, it's been important that every day I will begin with Scripture before screens. Scripture before screens. And before I I pick up my my phone, even to look at the text that came 
through the night, even before I open up an email or, or check the news, that I will begin my day, my foundation, with Scripture. Scripture before screen. That's a practice that I'm trying to do in my life. It's really hard. Are you making His Word the foundation of your life? Are you coming to know it in the truths that it say about God and about yourself and about your world so that you can then live your life from that foundation? The scripture is our foundation, and then it's also our measure. It's our ruler. Everything that the scripture says about God and about us and about our world are true. We can trust what it says. Everything that it says is true. But it does not say everything that is true. Everything that can be said that is true is not said in the pages of Scripture. Let me give you an example. Imagine that I need to have heart surgery. And I sit down with a surgeon and I, I ask the surgeon, Doctor, where did, you, where did you learn to have heart surgery? You're about to open up my chest and you're about to stick a knife on my heart. Where did you learn how to do this? And the doctor says to me, I learned everything that I need to know about heart surgery from the Bible. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find a new surgeon. The Bible wasn't given to us to tell us how to do heart surgery. Well, it's a different kind of heart surgery than it does, I guess, but the spiritual heart surgery that it absolutely does. But physical heart surgery, it wasn't given to us for that purpose. That was something that human beings, image bearers of God, discover because of the creativity that God gave to them. So through experimentation and study and using the creativity that God gave to human beings, they discovered the truth about how to do heart surgery, as well as a host of all sorts of other things. True things that are spoken of the world that are not spoken explicitly about in Scripture. Here's what's also true about the surgeon. What the Bible says about the world is the foundation that makes discoveries like heart surgery possible. The Bible tells the scientist and the philosopher and the artist and the psychologist and the surgeon that we live in an orderly world. A world that God created. That God has made and designed the world in a particular way. In Genesis 1 and 2, it says that, that God made birds and fish and mammals and human beings to reproduce according to their kind. So, when the surgeon opens up my chest, he knows that he is going to find a human heart there. Not an elephant heart or a squirrel's heart. He's going to find a human heart there because God has made the world in an orderly way that can be dependable. Does that make sense? The Bible tells us that there is order and design and predictability in our world that then makes things like science possible. And so as we live in the world, we encounter all sorts of ideas that come from Christians and non-Christians alike. Philosophies, worldviews, psychological principles, political platforms, artistic expressions, scientific ideas, so many things that the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about. 
And to the extent, this is important, to the extent that those ideas are true, they can only come from one source, and that is God. We can affirm them, and we can agree with them, and I can go get heart surgery. To the extent that the ideas that we encounter in the world are false, they can only come from one source, and that is Satan, and they are dangerous and destructive. Like the church in Pergamum, we live in a world with competing ideas, with idolatry, with images and messages about God and about ourselves and about the world. And because we're called to live in the world, but not be of the world, we need a measure. We need a ruler to help us discern the truths of those other ideas that we encounter in our lives so that we can know whether to accept them or to reject them, whether to swallow them or whether to spit them out. This is our calling as Christians wherever we go, at work, at school, as we engage in social media, as we think about life and politics, as we watch television, as we consume movies, and as you consume sermons. You need to be discerning about whether the messages that you hear, wherever they are, the ideas that you hear, wherever they are, and whatever source they are coming from, do they match? Are they consistent with God's Word? Here's the truth, and here's where it gets really messy. You can go to a university and learn true things about biology from a lecture given by someone who doesn't know God. And you can listen to a sermon and hear false things from the pulpit. And so it's our responsibility as Christians, no matter where we are, to be holding up Scripture as our measure. And is what I'm hearing right now, is what I'm seeing right now, does it match up, does it line up, does it hold up to the measure of God's Word? And I say to you that you will not be able to do that if Scripture isn't already your foundation. If it isn't already the thing that you are building your life upon, you will miss it. There's a great story in, in the book of Daniel that gives us a great example of what it means to live as God's Word as our measure. If you remember the story of, um, of Daniel and his friends in Daniel chapter 1, I'm out of breath. Daniel chapter 1, Daniel and his friends have been uh, brought from Jerusalem to Babylon. So they are in exile in Babylon. And Daniel and his friends, they are, they're, um, they're strong, they're, they're good-looking, they're smart youth. And so the king of Babylon brings Daniel and his friends into his palace. Go ahead and turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. I'll read a couple sections here for you. They bring him into the palace, and it says this. The king ordered, uh, this is verse 3, the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. 
And this official was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that were to enter into the king's service. Daniel and his friends entered into this three-year time of instruction and training in the literature, in the language of the Babylonians. They learned what the Babylonians believe. And then the next part of the story is that they were then going to be asked to do something by the Babylonians that went against God's word, and they said no. We will learn, we will come to understand what you believe, but the moment it bumps up against what we know God's word to be, we're not going to do it anymore. So verse 17 says, because they made this stand, it's a great little story there between verses 8 and 15, but in verse 17 it says this, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. We live in a world of competing ideas. We live in our own version of Babylon today. And you need to know what your measure is. You need to know what God's Word says so that when you encounter an idea in a book, in a lecture, at work, on TV, in a movie, on social media, that you can decide whether that is true or false based on that measure. We've been given this ruler, this measuring stick, a guide to help us discern what is right from wrong and true from false. The letter to the church at Pergamum is clear. The authority of our lives is Jesus. He is the one who is worthy to receive our allegiance, and he has given us his word, which is the foundation of our lives and the measure of every idea that exists in the world. His word is the double-edged sword coming from his mouth. Back to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll finish with the, the last verse. These promises, these wonderful, beautiful promises at the end of each of these letters. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. To him who overcomes. To him who puts aside any and every other authority. To him who is victorious over the idols of their lives and of their culture. To him who is victorious, here is what I will do. I will give them access to this hidden manna. And I will give you a white stone with a new name written on it that only you will know. What do these two images refer to. Manna was the bread that God provided for the Israelites when they were wandering around in the wilderness. And when the temple was built, the Lord commanded to take some of the manna and to put it in a jar and to place it in the Holy of Holies in the temple next to the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies was this inner sanctuary of the temple where God was most fully present. More than anywhere else in the world, God's presence was there in that inner room, in that inner sanctuary. And no one could go into the Holy of Holies except for the high priest, and he only entered it one day a year during the Day of Atonement. 
here, Jesus promises that if we overcome, if we will set aside any and every other idol and give our full allegiance to him, then he will invite us to come fully into his presence and to eat of the hidden bread that's found there. This is an invitation into the presence of God. This is an invitation to intimacy with God. And then there's this white stone, this white stone with a name written on it that only the one who receives it knows about. Now, there are at least a dozen different ideas about what the image of this stone is all about. Uh, during this time, it seems that white stones were actually used in lots of different ways. But let me offer you two of them that have moved me today, or this past week. One is that they were used as an invitation and then basically a ticket into a banquet. If you got a white stone, you were able to go into the banquet. You hear the allusions, illusions, allusions to, to um, the invitation into the wedding feast of the Lamb. They were also apparently given to people who were pronounced innocent at a trial. If they were on trial for some sort of crime and whatever jury was, or judge was before them, if they were innocent, they were given a white stone. You hear the, the allusions and the echoes to what we receive from Christ when we are claimed not guilty because of the blood of the Lamb. There was another one that I, I read about this week. It, that there was a practice at this time that when two friends would leave one another, that they would take a white stone and cut it in half and put one another's name on it in order to express the solidarity that they have in their commitment to one another. And I love the intimacy expressed in that statement, that there will be a, a new name written on that stone that only the person receives it knows about. I just wonder if God may have a nickname for every single one of us. Some nickname that expresses what he thinks about you, Tim. Some nickname that expresses this knowledge and love of you that he has that no one else has. And that one day we will get a stone with that name written on it that's just precious and dear to us. That there's some part of our relationship with God that no one else can enter into or know or to touch. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. Both the image of the hidden manna and the white stone tell us that God intends for us intimacy with him. And I think that that's really interesting at the end of a letter that emphasizes making Jesus our authority. Because usually when we think about authority, we don't think about intimacy. We don't think about intimacy with the king or with the president. They deserve our respect, but intimacy? There's not intimacy with those authorities in our lives, right? But it's not the same with God. Jesus makes this clear demand that we make him the sole authority in our lives, give him ultimate allegiance. And then the promise is that if we do that, that we'll know him. That we will experience intimacy with him. 
When we put God in the proper place of authority in our lives, then that relationship begins to fall into its proper place. But when we resist Him, if we do not make Him the final authority in our lives, if we allow some other allegiance in our lives, then that relationship with Him becomes broken. The intimacy and friendship with God that we are invited into is enjoyed when we make Him Lord of our lives. Because that's what He is. And when we agree to this position of authority that He has in our lives, then we can come and we can also enjoy intimacy and friendship with Him. So I just want to take a few minutes to be, to be quiet and to invite you to pray and to consider uh, what area of your life that you have been, been tempted to believe some idea or to give some allegiance or some authority to in your life that, that doesn't belong there? Let's just take this, this time for, for us to be quiet and to reflect on that and ask God to give you the courage to repent and to turn away from those things and to declare Him today as, as Lord. Not of some area of your life, not of your church life or your family life or, or just those areas, but of every area of your life. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would reveal to us right now areas of our life that we need to turn around and repent from, areas where we have listened to another word, where we have given our allegiance or given up authority to some other thing other than you. Would you show it to us now? Lord, I pray that you would, you've shown any of my brothers or sisters or myself today some area, Lord, I pray that you would cause us, enable us, strengthen us to repent, to turn from that today. Lord, we, we surrender. We surrender to you, to your authority, to your power. We Declare and know that you are the one with the sharp, double-edged sword coming out of your mouth. That we have no power to resist or to overcome. And so we, we surrender to you today. We declare that you are Lord, that you are King. Lord, if, if anyone today has taken a step toward that, has turned around or has taken a step toward you, Lord, I pray that today that they would experience a taste of that intimacy and love and friendship that they can enjoy with you. When you are in that proper place in our lives, I ask these things in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Spirit you've given us. Amen.